Well, the 23rd of March is forever going to be etched into our brains and into our minds, uh, and it will be written in the pages of the history books for future generations to marvel at, because that is the day that our world shrank dramatically as Boris announced that we needed to stay at home, protect the NHS, and save lives in schools, offices, businesses, shops, leisure centers, gyms, parks, cinemas, pubs, restaurants, theaters, and many more places all shut their doors for lockdown. And for a large part of the year, we have been shut up in our homes, perhaps in our own personal echo chambers, listening to our own voices, or if we're fortunate, listening to the voices of some of our family uh, around us in our own houses. Since that date, we've been bombarded with news and media, but lockdown had that strange effect of separating us from the world and from one another. After all, that is what lockdown was all about, keeping us from the outside and from one another. Probably all of our experiences of lockdown have been different. Some of, my, some of us have been anxious. Some of us have been busy decorating. Some of us have been bored. Some of us have been stressed. Some of us have been lonely. Some of us have been overwhelmed by having all the children at home all the time. Some of us have enjoyed it. But as we emerge out of lockdown and as we tentatively creep back into the real world, how do we function as fragile people in a fragile world relating to other fragile people? How do we relate to those friends who flout the social distancing rules with abandon? How do we relate to work colleagues that we haven't seen for a while who wind us up? How do we relate to family members that we've enjoyed not having to see during lockdown? How do we relate to church members and friends that we haven't seen in the flesh for months? And how do we break through the isolation and the fragmentation of physical separation to restore what the last few months has snatched from us? How do we guard against making assumptions of people or judging other people whose perspectives on exiting lockdown is different from ours? How do we make sure that we don't come against people who interpret the guidance differently to we do or who want a return to normal quicker than we do? How do we guard against judging people who think the precautions are overly uh, unnecessary and overly protective? And how do we guard against judging people who are being in our minds, too cautious and too fearful? How do we work together when we're all in such different places, especially as we think about meeting together again? Wouldn't it be simpler just to keep going with what we're doing, withdraw into the safety of our own four walls because it's either too weird or too exhausting? Shouldn't we just keep things the way that they are? Wouldn't that be simpler? There's an old uh, song that uh, has done the rounds a little bit where one of the lines says this, to live with the saints above, oh, that will be glory, but to live with the saints below, that's a different story. So how do we do it? How are we gonna live together, function as fragile people in a fragile world with fragile relationships because of the lockdown? Well, we need God to speak his word and his wisdom right into our hearts. And that's what we're gonna do this morning as we go back to Ephesians chapter four, verses one to six. So if you've got your Bible, uh, please turn there and let's read God's word together. These are the same verses that we looked at last week. We're going to cover them again this morning. And here's what Paul says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. God's word to us. Now, the Ephesians were people just like you and me. They were from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different social backgrounds. They had different personalities, different perspectives on life and different priorities. And yet they were the same people in whom God, in his eternal purposes, had graciously saved and brought together as a church. And they were to display the unsearchable riches of Christ and the kindness of God towards sinners like you and me. And they were to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God by being the church. And that demonstration was to a watching world and to a watching spiritual realm. Now, last week, we looked at verses four to six, where we saw that Paul exhorts the Ephesians and he exhorted us to remember our fundamental identity and story as Christians. What is our bio and our profile? And we said that that he makes very clear with seven affirmations rooted in the in the oneness of the triune God, that we are one people, one body, one spirit. We have one hope. We've got one Lord in the same one faith demonstrated and, and made visible by our one baptism that we are connected to our father, one father who is the God of us all. Now that reminder of the origin of unity provides the basis and the foundation for exhortations that come in verses one to three, where we're going to see the charge to maintain unity and the character that maintains unity. So the origin of our unity, that we are one, those seven affirmations rooted in the oneness of who God is, now call forth a charge to maintain unity. And he tells us about the character that's required to maintain that unity. So we're going to look at those two points together this morning. So let's begin with the charge to maintain unity. Having finished the first three chapters of Ephesians, recounting the glories of God and all that Christ has done to save us uh, and how God has taken the initiative to call men and women to himself and poured out his great love upon us. Paul now in verse one urges us in light of those glorious truths to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received. We're to walk and live in a particular way that fits that high calling and what Christ has accomplished. That God has done a monumental, mighty and merciful change in all of our lives and that's produced a new life in all of us. And now we're to walk in the good and the light of that new life. We've been reconciled to God. We've been made part of his new community and now we need to live lives in keeping with that new reality. And verse one is a, is a headline exhortation, which Paul will unpack throughout the remaining chapters of four, five, and six of Ephesians. Is he gonna amplify the meaning of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? But verse three provides the very first detailed description of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it's a charge, a command to maintain the unity of the spirit that we have come to know that God has created 
through the gospel. Think of it this way, that one of the central elements of walking worthy is harmony in our relationships together with one another. That we are to live as one because we are one. Now, if you've got an NIV translation, verse 3 says it like this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. That implies that we are required. God is calling us to make zealous efforts to be diligent and urgent to maintain the unity that God has created. We read about the unity that he's created in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. But here we're called as God's people to put all of our energies and our efforts into maintaining and strengthening and protecting the unity that God has created through the gospel. And we're to do that with a sense of urgency and priority. Just as if someone was to uh, entrust us with a precious but fragile family heirloom and ask us to look after it so that no harm comes to it while it's in our care. So God here calls us to protect the unity of the church family from sinister influences, from danger, from attacks that would seek to damage or destroy or pull us apart. And in Ephesians 4, Paul doesn't give any hint as to the kind of things that disunity, uh, that cause disunity. He, he doesn't do that. He just gives us a positive exhortation. But in the rest of the New Testament, we see multiple exhortations to guard against things that cause divisions. Things like jealousy, rivalry, conceit, boasting, quarreling, gossip, slander, selfishness, uncharitable judgments, hatred, selfish ambition, indulging our sinful natures and believing false teaching. All of those things cause divisions that can be insidious, that can be debilitating and destructive to churches. But Paul's emphasis here is on the positive things that we can do to maintain our unity, for us to be eager and enthusiastic and zealous about our fellowship and our unity in the Holy Spirit. Now, there is one very important caveat that verses four to six imply here, and that is that we shouldn't maintain unity at any price. That unity should be uh, protected in all circumstances and all situations because it cannot be maintained where the fundamental truths of who God is and what he has done are jettisoned or abandoned. Where the fundamental truths of the gospel are at stake, the, the seven affirmations of our faith in the one triune God, we, we can't have unity. But where those things are not at stake, we should pursue unity with all of our zealous, diligent, urgent efforts. Now, God doesn't just give us a charge and say, go and maintain unity and then not tell us how to do it. He does give us the how as well as the what. So he says to us, do your utmost, Grace Church, Ephesians, to keep the unity of the spirit. It's really vital. It's really urgent to the health of the church. And here's how. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage. The character that is required to maintain unity. It might be cheesy to say, and there's people in the room, so they might laugh at this joke now. Hint, hint. <laughs> probably not it's cheesy to say but unity begins with you <laughs> yeah the quality of our church's unity depends on all of us exercising godly character unity does really begin with you and me 
Verse 2, Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have been called to. And that is seen in living a life that is characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience and by for loving forbearance. And he tells us that if we walk in this way, the result will be that our relationships in, our, in the one body, in the local church, will be united and harmonious. So let's just dive in and see what those four things uh, are for us and how we can seek to apply them in our own lives. He begins with humility, which is the opposite of that self-promoting, self-assured, self-centered, self-sufficient kind of life that the world calls us to live. Now, we can misunderstand humility and think it's about cringing, kind of groveling civility that we that we just got to sort of get into a false way of demeaning ourselves like, oh, I'm so terrible. Woe is me. I'm such a bad person. But that is not what humility is. Humility is lowly mindedness and the absence of self exhortation. It's not simply thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less and thinking about others more. Humility really is a sober-minded way of thinking. Think about it this way. Sober is the opposite of drunk. And when people are drunk, they lose touch with reality. They lose control of their inhibitions. They lose their control of their abilities and their faculties. They become clumsier and wobbly and foolish and impaired and careless. And so to be sober-minded, to think soberly and humbly is to if you like, to remain in control of one's faculties and abilities, to have that kind of appropriate, accurate, careful, deliberate, controlled, clear-headed way of thinking about oneself. That's the essence of humility. It's avoiding too high an opinion of ourselves because we are thinking soberly about ourselves. We're thinking clear-headedly about ourselves. Humility is that battling the infatuation that we have, that we think that we are the superhero in everybody else's life, that we're the sun about through whom all everybody else revolves around, that everybody should need to know our opinions and our ideas and our thoughts and our plans and our actions. Humility is battling against that kind of thinking. Humility is formed in, in large part by recognizing that everything we are, everything that we have, everything that we've ever accomplished, everything that we've ever been given is by the grace of God. Not to bolster our, e our own egos or self of sense of self-importance, but to minister to others just as Jesus has ministered to us as servants. So humility is that sober-minded, gospel-centered way of thinking that honestly assesses ourselves in light of who God is and our sinfulness in light of who God is and alters our perspective on ourselves and our perspective of how we portray ourselves and position ourselves and posture ourselves towards others. And when we get humility, when we exercise humility, there's no hierarchies, no power plays, no one-upmanship, hopefully limited pride and we protect and maintain the unity that God has created. So that's humility. What about gentleness? Now, sometimes gentleness is confused with weakness, with being spineless or timid, but gentleness is the same, rooted in the same biblical word that we get meekness from. That, and it's an idea, the Greek word means strength under control. 
And it's borrowed from military language. We probably said this before. It was borrowed from military language when Roman soldiers would train horses for war. They would seek to train them in such a way that they would be meek, that they would have strength under control, that these once wild animals, these strong animals that they would go into war with, these war horses would be able to stand up in the face of fighting in the face of noise, in the face of clashing of metal swords, in the face of shouting that these war horses would thunder into battle and be able to respond to the slightest touch of their rider or to a whisper in their ear. It was strength under control. So when Paul exhorts us to gentleness here, he's basically saying, let's have strength under control. Let's not be pushy. Let's not be self-assertive. Let's not demand our own way. Let's not be dogmatic and opinionated and blunt and abrupt with one another. Let's not seek to intimidate others or dominate others through the force of our personalities or the strength of our arguments. But instead, let there be strength under control. That we are compassionately considering others and that we're willing to exercise the laying down of our rights to waive our rights for the sake of other people. You see, lowliness and gentleness is something that Jesus was. Remember when we looked at Matthew chapter 11, verses 29, where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. And he says in verse 29 in Matthew 11, for I am gentle and lowly. It's the same idea here. Humble and gentle, gentle and lowly. So Paul's exhortation to us to maintain unity, the character that is required is be like Jesus. Then he goes on to speak about patience. This idea of being long-suffering in the face of injury and insult, that we are to endure wrongs and mistreatment and exasperating conduct of others, to put up with it, to bear with it, instead of flying off the handle in a rage or seeking uh, retribution and retaliation or just giving into bitterness and hating that person. Patience is an idea in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe God's dealings with his people. It's a recognition that all of us are works in progress and that none of us is the finished article. And we're called to be patient with one another, just as God has been patient with us and just as God continues to be patient with us. And this Christ-like, God-like patience leads us to the fourth thing that Paul exhorts us to, which is a loving forbearance, that the the long-suffering patience that we're called to makes allowances for the shortcomings and the weaknesses and the failures of others, even in the midst of conflict intention. So if we face mistreatment and malicious wrongdoing, if if it seems that uh, seemingly impractical, uh, practical, innocent, practical jokes, we, we become the butt of, if we're ridiculed or scorned or insulted or persecuted, or we're deliberately goaded or we're nagged, when people behave in ways that even if it's not directly um, at us, but it irritates us and it affects us or it disappoints us, when people do things that arouses anger and wrath within our hearts, when we get to the brink of losing our tempers, when we could so easily retaliate or punish them or act swiftly and harshly to, um, to 
it, to retribute in retribution and revenge against them. Paul calls us here to lovingly forbear them, to put up with them. That those who provoke us and mistreat us, we're called to display that Christ-like patience. The example of which we saw when Jesus is on trial right before his death in that kangaroo court when he's been accused of all sorts of things and when he's being mistreated and spat upon and beaten and whipped, he remains silent, he forbears. And even then from the cross as he's crucified, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. This loving forbearance is more than just simple tolerance. It's more than just putting up with people. It's an exercising of grace and forbearance and love that forgives those who offend us. And just as Jesus has loved and forgiven us and, forbo and, and bore with us, so we are to love and forgive and to bear with others. How many times? Well, Peter asked that same question of Jesus. How many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus says 70 times seven, which is not 490 times, it's every time someone sins against us. So walking worthily of the calling that Christ has called us to and saved us to is seen in a life characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. And if we walk this way, we will enjoy united, harmonious relationships as Christ's body. So the coronavirus season that we're in is a, has produced and provided us with an array of complex challenges for all of us to negotiate and to navigate. And perhaps the thought of how we do church in this season is one of the trickiest to navigate. If our church is anything like the broader society, we're going to have a multitude of different ways of thinking about this, of an assortment of strongly held convictions. Some of us will want to meet together again and we're impatient that it's taken so long to get back to normal. Others of us will think it unwise to meet until there's a vaccine and there'll be a whole bunch of people in between. Some of us are sick of social distancing and masks and Zoom and think, might think that the precautions are needlessly overreactions and that it's cowardly to do what the government asks us to do and it's cowardly to stay at home. Others of us will think that lockdown should continue and we question the government's wisdom to release the measures and the restrictions too quickly. In such a polarized and precarious environment, Paul here tells us that we have the opportunity to model Ephesians for humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance to one another, despite our differences. And that even if our opinions turn out to be the right way, Scripture calls us to love one another and not to judge one another. That right now is a moment for Romans chapter 14 to be at work in our hearts. And we haven't got time to read it, unfortunately. So let me just encourage you, go and read Romans chapter 14 yourself this afternoon, because that is how we are to walk together as we think about being a church in this coronavirus season. How do we function as fragile people in a fragile world with other fragile people, unsure of the new normal and the way forward with differing opinions? How do we relate to those who flout the rules? How do we relate to those group members who wind us up on Zoom? How do we relate to the church member we've enjoyed not seeing? How do we break through the isolation and the fragmentation 
of that physical separation. How do we stop judging others who have different perspectives to ours? Paul tells us a glad embrace of a countercultural, Jesus like humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. Even if we can't agree on the way forward, even if we don't agree with what we might outline this week about how we plan to meet together again, even if we can't agree with our friends or our group members on exactly the same things, even if we can't agree with the ongoing restrictions and the decisions made by government and officials, we are called to humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. We're called not to judge one another, but to love one another as Christ has loved us. And none of us should assume that we have arrived at the definitive answer of how to operate in this coronavirus season. Everyone must avoid thinking the worst of everyone else. Not everything is obvious. All of us are simply trying to be faithful and to do our best as we sort of build an aeroplane in midair. That's basically what we're trying to do here. But here is something that we can be absolutely certain of in the midst of so much uncertainty. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that has saved us with humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing, just like Jesus. Let's pray.